everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. But before we get into the podcast, a word from the sponsors of this episode, Chargebee. Chargebee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS and subscription startups, such as Hopin, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is particularly powerful for European startups to navigate complex issues such as tax compliances, invoicing, and billing regulations. The product also enables you to experiment with different pricing models and also to localize the pricing and checkout experiences. So check them out at chargebee.com. And now let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Benz Yendrusak, who is a Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of Sion, an online fraud prevention company based in Hungary. Benz and his co-founder Tomas Kadar founded cybercrime fighting company Sion straight from university in 2017 after being unable to find a good fraud prevention tool. More impressively, they're also one of those rare startups that have become profitable within two years of launching. So it is no wonder that they have attracted funding from VCs like Creandum and an impressive group of angels like the N26 founders, Revolut, ex-CFO, iZettle, ex-Chief Product Officer, and even one of the Onfido co-founders and many others. I'm delighted to have Benz on the show as my very first Hungarian-based startup. Welcome, Benz. Thank you very much for having me, Anita. And I want to thank all the listeners. I hope I can convey some useful information today. Excellent. When we spoke earlier, you said that there was no hesitation when you came out of university in terms of starting a company. I was wondering if you talk a little bit about your early days and what convinced you that starting an online fraud prevention company would be your calling in life. Sure. Back in the day, Tomas and myself, we were actually working on a crypto exchange during our university years. We were both crypto enthusiasts and that was a side project of ours. That's when we learned about how massive of an issue this can be for businesses. We completely pivoted into developing what we call Sion as of today. And we went from zero to hero real quick because now we're 155 employees. It's a massive change. But like you said, we never once hesitated. We had a vision, we had massive ambitions, and we wanted to do everything in our power to get where we are today. So that's pretty much it. What about your upbringing prepared you to be an entrepreneur? What is it about how you grew up or maybe the education system in Hungary made you want to become an entrepreneur? Funnily enough, when I was young, I was studying abroad. We initially lived in Romania and then in Russia and then in Kazakhstan. I was used to stepping out of my comfort zone. I was always having to make new friends every couple of years. And I always attended an international school. So my environment was multicultural. From my perspective, that really allowed me to be, be used to stepping out of my comfort zone and uh, make things happen, even if it's just out of the box thinking. We've been online on the internet for years, and there's so many fraud prevention tools out there. Why do you feel like there's room for one more? What was the opportunity you saw with Sion? When we faced fraud on our own skin initially, back when we were building this crypto exchange, we realized there's all these great solution providers out there, but we needed a solution immediately. If we didn't solve it, then we would have burned to the ground as a business. And probably many other online businesses are facing the same dilemma. All of these fraud prevention providers out there, they're focused on top tier clientele, on enterprise sales. Meanwhile, if you want to get your hands on their solution, you have to sit through multiple discovery and sales pitches. You're faced with complex pricing models. 
and complex cost structures. Certain cases, they may be lacking the relevant feature set. So we said, okay, this is going to take us a while and <laughs> let's build our, our own tool in-house. And then we quickly pivoted towards building a full-on fraud prevention suite. Now, fast forward to today, we arrived to our ethos, which is democratizing fraud fighting. And what we mean by that is we want to make our solution as easily accessible to as many fraud and risk managers out there as possible in the shortest time frame. So our user experience and onboarding flow is we're really pushing for that quick time to value that other companies aren't achieving on the market right now. That really quick time to value is definitely like a North Star. Everything you do has to help the customer get quick time to value. Tell me about how you've structured your product or your teams or other things that help you to get to this quick time to value, because that is your value proposition, right? So what are some of the things you've done as a company, as an organization, as a leadership team to make that happen? I think we're one of the first, if not the first fraud prevention company to actually make our tool available via a free trial. So we're putting our product first. Any customer out there can actually go on our website and test it out for themselves without having to interact with sales, uh, business development manager, or anyone in our sales team. We are letting the product sell itself on the one hand. And, you know, consumers are becoming more and more, on the one hand, demanding of this. And on the other hand, used to this because people nowadays, they want to buy buy testing it out first and committing afterwards. Just think about how you would consume Netflix or Spotify where you're sitting in the middle of the night, you want to watch a movie, and in a couple minutes time, you can pretty much get your hands on their services. We want to replicate that exact user journey in the world of fraud prevention. So we've built out a knowledge base, which is open to the public. People can actually watch videos on how to use our tool, which uh, funnily enough, I was the one that was uh, narrating it and clicking through the product and pretty much showing how to use it and utilize it in the best fashion. We have our API documentation that's public. We have various resources on our website that are there to support fraud and risk managers in terms of fraudster psychology and fraud trends and whatnot. We're trying to ungate as much content as we can. And in the meantime, put our products out there publicly so people can try it out for themselves and see how it works out for them. I've been in the B2B world for a long time. I see two challenges on why a lot of enterprise companies don't put their products online. And there may be more, but I can think of two. One is that usually the product needs to integrate with the internal legacy systems for it to work and behave in a certain way. So it's usually not possible to just try it on without that setup. And then the other is maybe to some extent, it's harder for competitors to know what your secret sauce is and to be able to compete and to be able to go against you more easily. How did you overcome those or were they not problems you had? That's a good point. So the foundation of it all is that you have to have a product that consumers can actually consume without much support. There's a lot of products that aren't necessarily set up in that fashion. It also depends on what your business model is. If you're doing top-down sales, then obviously a C-level executive is never going to be wanting to understand the intricacies of your product and what it does on a technological level. They want to see the added value. So they're not going to be the ones testing it out. This model works if you go bottom up. You have to think about specific 
market conditions in the sense that how competitive is the market? Do your customers actually know what the issue is? If this is a completely new tool that nobody's ever seen before, then they're probably not even going to understand what it necessarily is. So initially you have to educate them. That's why your sales team is there to educate the customer and then be able to close the sale. Now, since fraud prevention is nothing new and fraudsters have been around ever since the internet has been up and running, much of our customers are already aware of what the issue is. Mm. What they're trying to now focus on is quick time to value. And that's essentially what we're offering them. In fact, we're not even locking our customers into long time periods as other businesses are doing. What we're vouching for is pay as you go and cancel anytime you want, just like Netflix. We have a 30-day notice period, and if you want to cancel it, then that's totally fine. We believe in our technology, and we believe in our product, and we actually see very low churn rates. Uh, and it's usually not because they don't like our product. It's because, unfortunately, some companies, they went uh, bust during COVID, and we have seen that from our ideal customer profile segments as well, for example, in the travel industry, unfortunately. But meanwhile, other customers like in the financial sector, they've been booming. To sum it up, you have to have the right market conditions and the right product in place to be able to put your product first and for it to do the selling. It sounds definitely something from a consumer perspective that's really low friction to try and adopt, which is fantastic in this day of everything digital and having to go through really long sales cycles. What about your go-to-market? Obviously, your go-to-market also had to align with this idea of customers being able to see value for themselves. Also, because everything is so low touch from your side and people can cancel, is this a high volume for you to make your unit economics and your pricing and everything to work? Is it a high volume business? And how are you getting people inbound to be attracted to your product? One of our main focus areas from day one with my co-founder was building content. And we think content is king. We actually built a lot of quirky content in the very early days, which other enterprise solution providers are, are not able to do necessarily because of compliance issues and just the scale of where they are at. So one example that comes to my mind is I, I, I actually wrote a lot of, with my co-founder. We wrote a lot of the early blog posts on our website. And one that comes to my mind specifically is we tried to buy airline tickets on the dark net markets and then we would actually take screenshots and we we talked to these vendors we showed everything and this was for fraud and risk managers to understand what's going on in the other side right we showed everything of what the process was like and what happens there so that generated very good views and uh, a lot of people read that and reposted it and so on content for us has always been a major foundation for driving inbound leads. On the other hand, I don't want to downplay the role of our sales team. We do have uh, sales development representatives who are doing outreach for ideal customer profiles. And that also plays a very large role in our growth. I would say we're still very hybrid when it comes to revenue generation. And, and that's totally fine to me. We're pretty much shifting our focus slowly and steadily. We have achieved product market fit when it comes to unit economics. There's a clear product market fit. And now we're thinking, how can we build our product to be even more adapted to opening up that top funnel and serving more ideal customer profiles and, and pretty much widening the top of funnel so that more people can just fall into it. I think that hybrid model is where a lot of companies want to be. Maybe they're too much on one side or the other, but the hybrid model is 
I believe, the ideal fit for most companies. So could you maybe go a little deeper and tell me what percentage is inbound, what percentage is your outbound led? And what did you do first? Did you do inbound? When did you hire your sales development representatives or your salespeople? Can you give a little bit more insight into that machine? Sure. So I was our very first sales person and I was doing back-to-back demos, which initially we generated through cold outreach through uh, sales development representatives. In in the very early days, I was doing back-to-back demos all day long. And then in my free time, I would be writing a couple of the blog posts and case studies. And that gave us a very healthy mix of inbound and outbound leads. That's how we went until about two years ago. So we scaled up the sales team, obviously, and I wasn't our only salesperson after a while. In fact, today I'm, I'm involved in day-to-day operations and I barely jump on any customer demos, but it's been a very healthy mix of inbound and outbound. The good thing about outbound is it's very easily scalable. So after a while, if you set up the right framework and the right playbook, then you can really easily scale that up and it's easy to forecast with. The harder part about inbound is after a while, you can throw all the money at the wall, right? I mean, you can spend as much as you like, but you aren't necessarily going to see the same unit economics and return on investment after a while. So you Mm -hmm. just have to be very thoughtful of that. Also on the inbound side, I would say there's a lot of trial and error involved. You see if something works and then a quarter later, you just think about whether you're seeing good return on investment or maybe even in in longer terms than three months. But you measure back whether you've seen good return on investment and then you either scale it down or scale it up. Also, when you're building the funnel, something that we've come to learn with Tamash is it's all about numbers. It's all about measuring your metrics and KPIs and again, trial and error and seeing where you can scale and where you can't scale. The the move to free trial for us was a massive shift in mindset because before that we were demo focused and the whole marketing team was driven by demos. And now we're having to refocus to product uh, qualified leads. So people that arrive into our product and start interacting with our product and the way they interact with our product, that's the the new sort of measurement. And then there's a lot of intricacies of it because I did mention how they interact with our product and what they do mm. in that first time frame that they arrive in there is what matters the most. And that's how we can push them downwards in the funnel. It's all very interesting and it's science of its own. And when you say inbound, you're talking about both paid as well as organic. Yes, correct. Yes. Okay. Is there anything specific that you would attribute the success of your inbound machine to? Product. You have to pretty much set up uh, the the product in a way that it is selling itself. So if you don't set it up in that way, then it's not going to be successful. And also, if you don't set up your funnel in the right way, it's also not going to be successful because if you're not able to identify what the various points are where you're losing those valuable leads, then you're not going to be able to scale it up. Makes sense. How easy is it to start a tech company in Hungary? And what were the biggest challenges of setting up a company and running it from Hungary? As with every company, there's challenges that arise. Something that I truly believe is a blessing in Hungary is the talent pool. So engineering talent pool is great. And also the economics of it all is wonderful because I have been talking to fellow founders from Western Europe and you aren't able to 
tap into the same pool of talent because your cost structure is going to be very different and in the exact same stage as what we were at in Hungary. So from that perspective, we were able to keep our costs very healthy and we had a very healthy financial model all along. And we even had certain months when we were nearing break even before our, our Series A funding round, which is amazing to think about. You're yeah. hovering around break even. It's the best time to fundraise because it's not like you're having to look at your burn rate and your runway and you're you're aggressively talking to investors. And you're asking to to chuck money in the engine. No, you can lay back and you can say, it's totally fine. We have healthy financials. We've kept yeah. our costs under control. We'll be fundraising when we find the right uh, investor for us. So from building a company out of Hungary, it's been a blessing so far from this perspective because we do have a good engineering talent pool. We were able to keep our costs under control from an investment perspective. I would say it's more difficult, obviously, if we were talking about the UK or, or Germany or even Scandinavian countries where we see all these great VCs. In Hungary, there's a limited set. And also for a very long time, we felt that these great VCs weren't necessarily wanting to tap in to the Hungarian ecosystem or they weren't as bullish. So definitely we felt this was harder, but we, we've managed to break through and Creandum has been very trustful. They have three investments in the Hungarian region, actually. Mm. And so they're very bullish in the Hungarian ecosystem. And I'm really happy to see that they have so much faith in Hungarian founders. Obviously, your unit economics were amazing. So that ticks off a, a big checkbox for the VCs. So beyond product and beyond unit economics, which you had, which I'm sure made your fundraising enormously easier than others. What else do you think you need to have to do good fundraising? Is there any other thing you feel you did right or you've learned from a mistake that you could share? I still believe that investors are, are investing into founders. At the end of the day, you're selling yourself and your vision. That's rule number one. If they don't see and they don't believe in you as a founder, then that means you've failed and they're not going to put their trust in you. So I've come to realize that the fact that my founder and myself, we were always very aligned. We were always very driven. We had a clear vision of what we wanted to achieve. And this is just me reflecting on our past. That has probably led and played a huge role in, in our success. Like you said, we did have our unit economics. The market itself that we tapped into is very interesting. Cybersecurity and more specifically fraud prevention. It's an ever-growing issue. I think just last year, the UK has categorized it a national threat, online fraud in itself. And we are seeing that fraudsters are getting smarter and smarter. And as we're moving towards an even more so digital world than ever before, we will be seeing a growing rate of online fraud as well. My grandmother, who is buying online groceries right now, I wouldn't have imagined that a couple of years back. But Due to COVID, she's actually learned how to source her groceries online. She's being put out there and she's vulnerable. She doesn't know if she submits her credit card, what could go wrong over there. And there isn't much awareness being raised towards the public. So from that extent, I do believe that we're in a very hot market. There's room for growth. There's more and more businesses on a daily basis that need fraud prevention solutions and it seems like we've been doing a good job in terms of providing a tool that is able to help 
various verticals when it comes to preventing online fraud. So I think if you mix all of this together, then you get the idea that we've been building a company that's very scalable. Luckily, we have a good rhythm with my co-founder and we complement each other. And investors have been uh, praising us and they've put their faith in us. So we're very happy to have them on board. Fantastic. Benz, before I get into this rapid round, I have one last question for you. You're obviously sitting on a lot of data when it comes to the kind of frauds that you're seeing and preventing with your platform. I don't know if you've looked at that data and have any insights in terms of the frauds that are coming on in different parts of the world. Anything that surprises you? Anything new from what it was a few years back? Anything that you can share with us? In terms of fraud trends, generally speaking, from a very high level, account takeovers are something that is booming. I've been talking to competition as well, and they're also seeing that account takeovers are a massive issue. That means that people are submitting their places that they shouldn't be submitting their details on. I, I get asked this question a lot. What would I like to see that should be different in the industry? And I would, I'd like to see more awareness being raised towards the public. That's definitely one thing I vouch for, because that could be like a root uh, solution. If everybody yep. knew about fraud and they knew that they shouldn't be submitting their details in places that are bad, where bad actors are present, most of fraud could be eradicated. So I think we should be teaching the public and we should be raising awareness. What are some Uh, of the ways in which you can tell if the site that's asking you to submit information is dubious? This varies from geography to geography. Like in Germany, funnily enough, the population, they don't want to submit their details on various websites. They just stick to the, the larger players like Amazon, for example. And that's a good way to tackle it. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the population is so used to paying and checking out online that they're willing to submit their credit card details all over the place. So I think it's the mindset as well. Maybe something that's useful to think about is you should stick to the larger players who you've seen their advertisements online and you know that they're legit websites and they mitigate themselves. They're already pushing to mitigate fraud rates and they're keeping in line with the relevant guidelines and whatnot. That's one way to tackle it. Another one is if your gut feeling tells you that something is fishy, then don't move forward. Even the fact that if you're at a certain stage of checking out or registering online and you question to yourself whether this is legit or not, then you're doing the right thing. So even if you're aware that there's these bad actors out there, then already you're uh, better than a large percentage of the population. Any other insights you want to share? Like the kinds of frauds that you're seeing, new ones that you didn't see a few years back that now, either because of the pandemic or just the sophistication of the internet and the bad actors are becoming more prominent. So one you said was account takeover, anything else? Money mule scams. I'll, I'll give you a very classical example. So now that COVID has hit, we did see large waves of uh, people losing their jobs and economic downturn in certain areas and certain industries. So in the meantime, what we did see was fake job listings. What they did was these fraudsters, they would require you to submit your ID card and they would sometimes make you sit through a job interview, which was being recorded. And then... They would ask you in the end, okay, now turn your face right, turn your face left, please show your ID card, please state your name and whatnot. And then they would use that raw footage to actually open up a bank account in your name, for example, with an 
online uh, challenger bank or a neo bank, which allows you to remotely open up bank accounts. I'm mentioning this because it's a very practical example of what's been going down in the past uh, one and a half to two years. And it is scary. You're pretty much playing on the vulnerable people at this point, right? Uh, If you feel like something isn't right, then do question. Sometimes I get calls from my bank and they're trying to tell me some promotions and whether I should get another credit line and whatnot. They ask for my personal details. Before they tell me the promotion, they ask for my mother's name and my date of birth and whatnot. And I always tell them like, um, sorry, I'm not going to give you that uh, information. Nobody should be submitting their details. You know, if somebody calls you up, you don't owe them anything. Please don't submit your details to them unless uh, it's, it's an emergency or anything to that extent. But in that case as well, do question and uh, do think twice before talking to anybody. That was really frightening, but I'm glad there are companies like you fighting this problem. And looks like it is a problem that's only going to become more important in the future rather than less important. Okay, we come to our rapid round now where I ask you questions that have less to do with Sion specifically and just more to do with you. And I always start off with what's your favorite book? A book that made an impact on you as a person or as an entrepreneur that you would like to share? Something I read in the past couple of years was 48 Laws of Power that I found interesting. And I always take these books with a grain of salt. So just to be upfront, like, but interesting stories and interesting perspectives from the past, even from historical times. So that was an interesting read. A couple of nights ago, I was reading a Franz Kafka book. Specific quote I liked was, bad knows about good, but good doesn't know about bad. And you can relate to that quote on a lot of levels in life. When somebody's happy, they don't think about the bad times. When you're in a worse place, you always think about, oh my God, how I took good for granted. That was a good quote. Well, I love that. Actually, one of my other questions was a quote. So you gave me a quote, which is fabulous. What about a productivity tool, productivity tip or hack, something that you use that helps you be productive? Sleep is very important for me. And I'm also a person of habits. So I stick to my habits. I have my morning routine. I have my post-work routine. I always reward myself with a nice meal. I go all out with my dinners and I get enough sleep. Nice. A good, healthy balance. What about your favorite city in Europe? There's so many. I love Paris. Is there any other quote that you particularly want to share? Uh, Yeah, another one that comes to my mind. One cannot teach a man anything. You can only help him to find it within himself. That that I really like. A very true and a good quote, especially for, for entrepreneurs. Well... Thank you so much, Benz, for being on my show today morning. I, I really enjoyed our conversation, both from an entrepreneurship level, but just as a consumer as well. And I really appreciate the insights you shared with me. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Anita. And I want to thank all the listeners. I hope uh, some of the things I said was interesting. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.